Before we read scripture together, let us pray. Father God, please open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. The Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. The New Testament reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by a God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks again, Anna. Good morning, everybody. My name's Graham. It's lovely to be with you today. Um, here we are. I love this picture. I didn't expect to say anything about it, but I will. Uh, painted by a guy called Richard, Kirk Richard. And it's a scene from the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, whereby the devil takes Jesus up onto one of the highest pinnacles of the temple. And he says, all of this, all the glory and honor I will give to you. The temptation is to shortcut the pain of the cross and to get to the glory that he says. The color of light and dark gives this idea of battle between good and evil. And Jesus with his back turned to the devil, his refusal, or perhaps the fact that 
there's deception going on. Satan is hidden in this same. It's a powerful picture. That wasn't what I intended to open with. This is what I intended to open with. Have you ever had one of those significant learning moments where some chunk of truth, some fact falls into place and makes sense of so many other things? This was one of mine. It's the very first sentence in a book that I read 25 years ago. The author, M. Scott Peck, he goes on to explain why life is difficult. He says that life is full of problems and problems evoke in us all kinds of suffering, frustration, grief, sadness, fear, shame, anxiety, guilt, anger, regret, rejection, loneliness, and on and on and on. He says that sometimes these pains can be even more painful than physical pain. Life is difficult because it hurts. He said that whilst the wise of this world through the ages recognize that it's through facing life's inevitable painful problems that we grow, that we mature, that most of us, however, were not that wise. And instead of facing life's difficulties and its pains head on and growing through them, that instead we procrastinate, ignore, forget, avoid, deny, moan, gripe, blame others, and oftentimes use drugs, alcohol, sex, or whatever else seems to work in order to mask the problem and avoid the pain. It's not cheery, is it? It's not, not, it's not flattering. After decades working as a psychiatrist, Scott concludes that this is what is at the root of 99% of his clients' conditions, and hence is their core problem. They are all running away from their pain. When I first read these words, uh, a, a long time ago, boom, they struck me to the core. I was in my mid-twenties, I just came out of a, a ten-year chaotic descent into pain upon pain. I was out of that and I was wondering what on earth my problem had been, what on earth had happened. This is what my problem had been. I'd spent my whole life running away from my pain and taking everything and anything, falling into any temptation, anything that would offer me some pleasure, some escape from my pain. And all of those things that I chose would inevitably bring me more pain. One day in a season of particularly acute pain, and there is something about pain that really does, as I say, draws us to be open-minded towards the things of the divine, you know? I was so hopeless and I saw in a way that I'd never seen before that I was utterly stuffed. As the author of Hebrews puts it, beset with weakness. I couldn't stop myself from doing these things that were bringing so much pain in my life. So I did something I'd never ever done before with an honesty I'd never known, I'd never, a depth of heart I'd never been able to reach. I turned to the God that I knew nothing about and even the nothing that I knew was utterly wrong. I turned to that God anyway in my pain and I said, help me, help me. And immediately, immediately, I received grace and help in my time of need. And the key things that I was turning to that life, the, the, the drugs, the alcohol and everything like that, the, desi the desire for that, it's unusual, was completely taken out of my soul. 25 years later, no temptation at all, but many other temptations have taken their place. A few weeks later after staring of these words, I realized it was time to grow up. 
Now, I have to say I don't recommend the book. It kind of leans a lot into Eastern mysticism and all that. But the, the first page is pretty good. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff. Anyway, two years later, Peck became a Christian, which I think is interesting. He was a truth seeker. You've got to respect that. The Hebrew, well, the audience of Hebrews, we'll call, keep calling them the Hebrews, they're in pain and they are hurting. They've suffered in the past, they're suffering now, and it seems that in the future, more suffering is likely to come. And they suffer for a very particular reason. They're suffering because they have made it public knowledge that their allegiance is to this person, Jesus Christ. They live according to his ways. And living in accordance with the ways with Jesus puts them at odds with the world around them. And the world hasn't liked this. The world has turned against them and is persecuting them. And this persecution looks like something uh, specific. It is being hauled up in front of the authorities, publicly ridiculed, shamed, uh, being arrested, dragged away from their families, in prison, property and other assets seized, their community and colleagues and neighbours turning against them. It's been put out of the synagogue. It's slander, rejection, it's abuse. It is pain upon pain. And yet in the midst of every single bit of that, they have stood their ground. They have held fast to their Jesus. And in the thick of all, in the thick of all of it, in the obedience to the Jesus to whom they profess allegiance, they've loved one another as per the command. What a witness. What a powerful witness to those watching. They would not budge. But something has changed. Something is different. And from the rest of the Hebrews book, we can draw a picture of what that change seems to be. Where once they heard the message, when once they heard the gospel, and that is truly heard, meaning obeyed, believed, took to heart, trusted in, acted on. When once they heard that, with that quality of hearing, now they've stopped listening. It's in one ear and out the other. They're disengaged. They've stopped listening to their leaders. And some of them are not even bothering to come along to the gatherings anymore where the word is preached. Instead of maturing in the faith, of growing in the faith, they've regressed. They've went backwards. And the danger with this is that as more pain comes into their life, right beside that, the temptation will also come to try and find a way to avoid that pain. The temptation to take another route, to abandon the way of Jesus in favor of an easier, softer way. In other words, they will deny the Jesus that they confess. They will fall away. This is the great test that's upon them and is, and is coming upon them even more so. Will they hold fast to the high priest of their confession or will they believe the lie of temptation and fall away. This is the author's great concern. Why does this matter to us? We might not be under the same persecution that the Hebrews were. We not, might not be under that. Thank God we're not. But nonetheless, we are faced with all kinds of temptations all of the time. The faith that we would confess, that we would claim to hold, is continually being put to test. It's tested in our choices about money, romance, prestige, status, career, all those things. And it's tested in any situation where being identified with Jesus might actually be a hindrance, a hindrance to our gaining or keeping whatever we think of as being the good life. If being allied to Jesus might not advance that, the temptation will be there to deny and to turn away. 
Do we? Or shall we hold fast in the face of such temptations? Or do we, in little way or large, deny the Jesus of our confession, of our faith? And we can say what we like, just as I can, but I won't actually know the answer to that until I'm tested. We won't know the answer to that until we're tested and we come out the other side. Then you can answer that. One thing this book makes clear about this temptation is we are absolutely vulnerable to it, every single one of us. And over the years in St. Andrews, as part of the wider St. Andrews community, you see the evidence of that time and time again. Young people who come amongst our community for a while, they see something something of the beauty of the gospel, a weighty message. They see something of Jesus shining through it, and they like it. And then something else catches their eye. Some other priority takes over, and they're snatched away on the cusp of what might have been their faith. And not just young people. People that we would consider to have been pillars of the community, who served over years and years and years and years and years. Something else took priority in their life. They don't come anymore. They are. They've gone away. They've gone away. Further afield, people in positions of leadership in the faith for multiple decades fall into some temptation, some scandal, and they hit the ground in disgrace. And even further afield than that, around the world we hear the stories of the, the people heading up huge churches who again somehow manage to fall. They get caught in some terrible situation. Something is exposed and they fall and they bring their communities down with them. Can this happen to us? Yes, it happens regularly among us. And this is why the book of Hebrews is so powerful and so helpful. And the author of this book warns us time and time and time again. And he puts it this way. He says, listen. He says, listen closer. Pay closer attention to what you have heard, the gospel message, the truth of God's word, because we are much more vulnerable than we might think. That's the slide I want. Good. Our passage speaks of the high priest of the temple who, like us, being beset with weakness, can sympathize with us in our ignorance and waywardness. The picture this paints of us in relation to temptation, and that's about what it's speaking, is really, really poor. This term, beset with weakness, he can translate it subject to weakness, means to be weighed down, to be clothed in and bogged down by it. To be subject to is to be mastered by something under its power. To be beset with weakness, to be mastered with this tendency towards temptation and everything that that is. But why is it? What is it about temptation that makes it so powerful, that makes us so weak? What even is temptation? I think Matthew, who's somewhere, used a similar... Did you use a similar slide to this uh, a while back in a sermon? Right, I must then dreamt that then. That's, that's fine. Good. Right. Yes, you did. Ah, thought so. Sorry. I'm really, really sorry about that. Okay. The word that's translated uh, temptation in the passage that Anna so beautifully read carries with it two meanings. It's behind it's this Greek word, put that word there and, and <laughs> that word there, right? Behind it, uh, this word can carry two meanings depending on the context. And it seems that both meanings are intended here. And we see them there to test or to tempt. 
To test here is to a test that reveals the quality of something. You just built a wall. You want to test it to see, find out if it's strong. How do you do that? You give it a good kick. To test the quality of something. Here, it's the faith that is being tested. And also translated temptation. And again, both, both meanings are intended in this passage. Uh, to tempt us to, to draw away from something towards the good and towards the bad. To draw us away from the good towards the bad. Lots of uh, passages that we could look at here throughout the New Testament. James is particularly obvious. Each person is tempted uh, temp uh, when he is lured, drawn away, and enticed or baited by his own desires. Our own desires, baiting, luring, enticing, drawing. It's all the language of deception. Temptation in our passage means to draw away from the good towards the bad through something that is at work that tries to draw us away from it. There is a deceiving factor at work in, deception, in, in temptation. What I want to do, what I've been asked to do, is to put these principles we've been talking about so far, deception, temptation, desires, and our faith, our confession, to make these real in a personal story. What does this look like in our hearts and our minds and our everyday living? And that's what to do. It's a lengthy story, so bear with it. And it comes with a warning, a trigger warning. For those of you who are particularly sensitive to cringing, then what you're about to hear is about the love life of a middle-aged, slightly balding bloke from Dundee. <laughs> You've been warned. <clears throat> so, like most people, uh, for most of my life, I hoped that I would meet someone special, get married, and all that. And at times, I've deeply longed for this. And although there's been friendships that have started off along that trajectory, it hasn't happened. And that's okay. I'm quite, quite content with that. Uh, about four or five years ago, I decided to stop looking. It was actually too important to me. You know, getting a bit older, kind of running out of time, a wee bit of panic. And No, this isn't right. Stop. I decided to stop looking. And about roughly the same time, within that same season, uh, I met a former work colleague, a work friend. She was a decent person, easy company. And as we say in Dundee, I, she was a bonnie lass. She was a bonnie lass, she was, right? She suggested that we meet up, because uh, our meeting was brief when, we, when I bumped into her, that we meet up again, grab a coffee, catch up properly, which we did. We spend the evening together, and the course, over the course of a lovely evening, she changed before my eyes. She changed from being decent to really quite wonderful. She changed from easy company to delightful company, and she changed from bonnie to being absolutely beautiful. And over these hours, as this change took place, all those really pleasant feelings began to rise up in me and, and desires, right? I was aglow. What's going on? Now, in the midst of all those, other, all those feelings, another feeling came up, a wee naggy feeling, a wee red flag, saying, Graham, what's going on? All right. Afterwards, I phone up a good friend and I tell them what's happened. And my friend says to me, really wise stuff, 
said, Graham, what you want to do, you want to go to that person, you tell them exactly how you feel, and you tell them why you can't go there. Okay, right. So I go to this person, because I realize this is one of those gospel opportunities, right? Gospel opportunities is a good one. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I do my praying, absolutely. And I go there and I meet with this lovely creature. And I tell her exactly. What? Am I oversharing? Again. I tell this lovely person exactly how I feel. How attracted I am. How much I enjoyed that company. How absolutely fascinating she is. And all those different things. Basically I'm saying I really, really fancy you. I tell her that and I say to her, but I'm really, really sorry. I'm a Christian and that's everything to me. And you're not. And that means, in the, despite everything we have in common and all the chemistry that was absolutely bursting, despite all of that, we are in the most fundamental way, we're not compatible. I'm really, really sorry, but I can't do that. The feelings were mutual, it turned out. She respected that. And if I'd left it there, that would have been quite a powerful witness. But I didn't. I decided to meet her again to share something more of the gospel. <laughs> I wanted her to hear the gospel. I wanted her to come to faith. I wanted my desires to be satisfied. Oh, so dearly. Oh, so dearly. Okay, so we continue. We keep meeting up. Uh, this went over weeks and months. It was wonderful. The faith was shared. Deep questions were asked. And uh, I got to know this person really, really quite deeply. As we did, my feelings towards her, my desires grew stronger and stronger and stronger. And these as these desires grew, the very lens through which I saw her, that I perceived her, and the circumstances going at that time, that very lens began to shift, to distort and to bend in favor of my desires. The weird circumstances and coincidences that were going on, I was interpreting as being God telling me to, to keep pursuing this. And there were quite incredible coincidences that were happening, right? And of course, the way that I was seeing this lady, she changed from being bonnie to beautiful to being the most marriable person I'd ever met in my life. Was God in this? Was she the most marriable person that I'd ever met? I experienced all these things at work in me, all those desires, all the temptation, everything that's going on in there as being like a power. And Hebrews calls this beset with weakness. It's a power at work in us. Paul later on explains more about that. But let's just know it that way just now. And I want you to see that power at work in me. And I want to highlight the fact that I'm 25 years into the faith, that I'm someone entrusted to be a leader in this community and entrusted to teach from God's word. I want you to see me that way and as one beset with weakness under this power. And I want you to understand too another power at work in me and in those circumstances in this story. I want to call that power the confession of the faith our confession. 
So you have one power that's beset, being beset with weakness, drawing me one way through my desires, bending my perception, for pulling me further and further towards the edge of a cliff, if you like. And you have another power at work in me, the confession of our faith, pulling me the other way, holding me fast, bringing scriptures to mind, encouraging me to pray, bringing conversations to mind, and so on, holding me back, Go and speak to somebody. Pray some more. Remember what it said in the scriptures about being yoked with unbelievers. What is it you remember that God says about sex and relationships and who's a fitting partner? What have you learned over the years? All those things in my confession. The Spirit speaking to me through his word in me. Pulling me back. Two powers at work. A battle going on. And the front line of this battle is in my soul. It's in my reasoning and in my feelings and in my desires. It was, I think, one of the, one of the last times that we met together. Um, I outright just plainly asked the question, what do you think it is that stands in the way of your coming to faith, of being even open-minded? And this person thought about it and with real, real honesty said, I don't know. I can't. I can't do it. And the image that came to mind within that was of myself trying to feel or to push my way through a solid marble wall that was polished flat. There wasn't a crack in it. There wasn't a doorway. It was humanly impossible to get through this. And here I was trying to push my way in. Here I was walking along the edge of the cliff with the ground crumbling beneath my feet. Almost drunk with all those desires and those ideas in my head. Yet trying to hold fast and stay faithful to the life I believed Jesus was calling me to live. In a sense, and this is what God says about romance and sex and relationships and all these things. I'm trying to hold fast. I'm trying to walk in faith. But enough I couldn't do it anymore. And so I walked away. We decided to walk away. We both agreed that that was it. To not see each other at all. We agreed that we had to do that. And we agreed it because it was the loving thing to do for one another. And so we walked away. So in all this, the questions that I start with, those principles, was I deceived? Was I being tempted? Were my motives mixed? Was I unwise? Was I in love? whatever that means. Was I being tested? Absolutely, yes. I had a choice to make. We're just concluding this story now. I had a choice to make between the woman, the only person that I've known that I liked enough to say, I would marry you if things were right. The only one. The choice between that, to reach out and take, or the Jesus who says to me, can you trust me in this? Can you trust what my word says about sex and relationships and marriage and all those different things? Will you trust me that I have your best interests at heart? I was tested and by the skin of my teeth, I came out of there about crossing various lines. I think you get my drift. That's the story. As I said, it's quite long, and it has a certain tone about it. 
and the tone's going to shift right now as we now take that and let the rest of the scripture speak into that story and others like it. And I'm very, very aware in telling that story, that's going to be close to the heart for a lot of us. And I know it's going to provoke questions and I know it's going to disturb. But I hope you know and see that I'm with you in that and I'm no different in those, in those things. I think you know that. The tone's going to change and a lot of this will move through quite quickly. What is it that makes us to weak to temptation, so, so subject to weakness as that is? It's self-deception. We are utterly prone to self-deception. To self and it seems it's been that way a long, long time. Even the garden looks and reasons thus. Seeing that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desired to make one wise. It's a no-brainer in her head. And so she takes and she eats and she falls. And the consequences come pouring in. Into this picture then of our experience that we've had since pretty much the beginning of being so weak, so easily fallen, of being so easily deceived and pulled, led in life by our desires. Into this the Hebrews speaks. Hold fast, draw near, receive Take these bits and we'll look at them and some of them will skim over quite quick. And as I say, it'll be quite a different tone from the story I told, which I imagine you'll be processing a bit. Let us hold fast our confession, the author says. And as Heather touched on last week, our confession is what we say we believe in. The Apostles' Creed is a short confession. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a much longer <laughs> confession. You might describe our confession as a series of faith decisions based on God's word as to what is true, as to what is true of who God is and what he's like, of who Jesus is and what he's done, who we are and what God thinks of us. It's the truth of what the good life is and it's the truth of how to get there. It's the truth of power, the different powers that are at work in our life for us and against us and it's the truth of the one who holds the ultimate power. And it's the truth of how that ultimate power works on our behalf and the love that's in that power. To hold fast to our confession then is an absolute refusal to let go of God's revealed truths in Scripture. I want to ask, what is your confession? Is it the confession that we share? If we don't have a confession, then we are Deeply, deeply weakened. To hold fast to our confession is also to use these truths as swords by which we cut through deceptions and temptation, by which we discern what is true or false, what we discern what is good and what is evil. But even holding those swords, we are not strong enough to wield them. And so the author tells us, you need a great high priest, one with power, one who will dispense grace and mercy to you. The word confidence here is really interesting. Our confession tells us that God invites us to his throne. Come, 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 all the time. That's his heart towards every one of us. Draw near, come, come, come to me. Confidence here describes a boldness of speech. It's like approaching an authority and speaking. And yet there's another meaning in it 
which is about deep, deep, heartfelt honesty. To confidently approach God is to hold nothing back, whether we are angry or hurting or frustrating, whatever it is that fills our heart, to open our hearts up and to tell him everything. Assured, absolutely assured, that he will by no means turn us away. Why would we hide anything anyway from the eyes of him who through his word sees right into our souls? That sword of truth that it spoke about in the verses that Heather finished on last week that goes right into the thoughts and intentions of our heart, dividing soul and spirit and revealing those things, the swords that we're talking about that cut through deception. He lays us bare before his eyes. This gracious God sees right into our hearts. Why on earth would we think to hold anything back from this God? He knows it all anyway. And he says, come. <coughs> to draw near to the throne of grace is to come close. And to his children, this throne is a throne of mercy. And the gracious God who sits on this throne... <laughs> The author calls the high priest of our confession and names him as Jesus. Throughout the whole book of Hebrews, the author time and time again points to the things that were significant, hugely important to the Hebrews in their tradition. It's all the things that mediated the relationship between us and God. The temple, the temporal sacrifices, uh, the, the, the prophets, uh, Moses, the covenant, the promises, all the things in which a high priest would attend to in order to deal with the things that get in the way of the relationship between us and God. And he talks about how this character, Jesus, not only fulfills these roles, those things, uh, perfectly, but he utterly surpasses them. And what we're talking about here is the one who is inviting us to draw near. And the author is telling us what his credentials are how utterly suited to that role he is, how perfectly he fulfills that job. And remember, the job of the priest is to deal with everything that gets in the way of our relationship with God. He deals with everything. Let's quickly just touch on some of the reasons he gives because he piles them up again and again and again why we should draw near, why we should depend on him and ask him for help. The great high priest who has passed through the heavens, this journey that Jesus does, this passing through the heavens ends up with Jesus taking his seat at the right hand of God. This is the place of ultimate authority and power. His point, this Jesus, this great high priest, is the most powerful being in the universe. He's a son of God. Begotten of the Father, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He shares the same nature as the Father. This great high priest is God. He is sinless. Unlike all the priests before him who had to sacrifice, make sacrifice for their own sin as well as ours. He doesn't have to do that. Instead he offers himself as a sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice that permanently permanently, that completely, that perfectly deals with our sin once for everyone who believe in him forever. Sinless. And quite remarkably, this high priest is sympathetic or empathetic as a priest who knows, who understands firsthand 
in every possible way what it is to face temptation of every kind and who knows pain, all kinds of pain. He's been there. He's felt it. He's faced it. Every single thing. And so knowing that, this high priest deals with us gently. We tell him our pain, our temptation. He says, I understand. I went through the same thing myself. I know exactly what that's like. That's our great high priest. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus tempted time and time and time again and experience all kinds of pain and rejection and, and grief. All those different things again and again and again. And finally, unlike the high priests before him, whose priesthood lasted just for a season, just until they die, this Jesus, this great high priest who calls us to draw near to his throne, his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. We might hear more about him in the coming weeks. He's an Old Testament character. He's hanging out with Abraham for a bit. And the thing about his priesthood is it lasts for all eternity. Jesus, our great priesthood, will not change. He lasts for all eternity. So many reasons, the author stacks them up, one after the other, that this particular high priest utterly deals with and surpasses and perfectly clears the way between us and the throne of God. Hence, draw near. Everything's dealt with. You will not be turned away. It is beautiful. It is powerful. It cannot be beaten. You couldn't imagine this. You could not make this up. Our great high priest. In the final verses, in the final verses, the author shows us something of Jesus as our example, who in the days of his flesh, that is his earthly life, lives out what it looks like in the face of pain and temptation to hold fast, to draw near and receive. And we see him here drawing near to his father with confidence, praying from the heart, loud tears and cries, utterly open, trusting his father completely, nothing hidden, nothing held back, trusting that his father can save him from the death that he is about to die. And he does, he raises him from the dead. And we see too in this something of why Jesus suffers. It's a question that's often asked in the world in which we live. And I wouldn't dare tackle that subject now. But the author does begin to suggest something in this. It says that although he was a son, there he goes, there we go, that's it. Although he was a son, that is perfect in his divinity, sharing the same nature as the Father. His humanity needed to be made perfect. Perfect here means brought to completion. Something needed to be done in his humanity. And it describes that thing that needed to be done as the learning of obedience. And this learning takes place as he holds fast in the face of the pain and the temptation before him, i.e. what he suffered. And the learning he needs to do is this, is to completely know through personal experience what it costs, what it feels like to be fully human and to face pain and every kind of temptation. To hold fast in the middle of that. And once this learning was complete, God designates him this high priest, this Jesus, 
gives him the office of, names him high priest forever. And the source of salvation, the author of salvation to all who obey him. Obey as in hear, listen, take to heart, trust, believe, act upon, and then draw near the throne. And so for us too, we can take something out of it. This is my last few sentences coming up. For us to, as subject to weakness as we are, that as we hold fast, however falteringly, and we will fail, that's a given. We won't get this right all the time. However falteringly, in the midst of all kinds of pain and temptation, that as we draw near with the most heartfelt prayers we possibly can, with as much honesty as we can possibly muster, that as we come close to him, something happens in that coming close, something goes to work within us and begins to transform us. And in the same way that Jesus, as the Son of God, takes his nature, his very nature from the Father, is given, the Father gives his nature to him. So Jesus gives something of that nature to us. That as we draw close and approach his throne, we become participants in the divine partakers of the divine nature and that means many many different things it means that we begin to be transformed to become christ-like and in becoming christ-like we become more fully ourselves utterly ourselves but increasingly christ-like and that begins to play out in our very very lives we become more and more better able to show other people who god is and better able to encourage one another to draw near to God. Like Jesus, the high priest, the high priest who mediates in the relationship between the man and God, we become priest-like, helping to mediate and be involved in a priestly way in each other's life, in each other's lives. We become priest-like. And so, Hold fast to our confession. This high priest, this Jesus, who utterly surpasses that priestly role, draw near and receive grace to help in our time of need. Because life is difficult. And here is everything that we need.